You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Carter Hawkins has been with the Indians since 2008, starting in the scouting department and working his way up through the front office. He became the director of player development shortly before Francisco Lindor made his big league debut, part of a core that helped Cleveland win the AL pennant in 2016. I had a chance to sit down with Hawkins at the Indians' spring facility in Goodyear, Arizona, before camps shut down due to the coronavirus pandemic. We discussed his lengthy run with the Indians, the difficulty in trading young players, Cleveland's incredible front office stability, and much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Indians Assistant General Manager, Carter Hawkins. But first, a word from our presenting sponsor, Roman. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Carter, you grew up in Atlanta. Were the Braves your your first passion in sports? Yeah, they were. I was born right in that that, that glory period of being a Braves fan. So 91 was kind of the first years that I actually went to major league games and, you know, fell in love with the Ron Gantz and the David Justices of the world. And, you know, I think it also coincided with Atlanta blowing up as a city. And so, you know, just everybody was playing baseball and it, it was a really fun time. And then certainly kind of spawned my love for the game. You played as a, as a kid. Uh, you went to Vanderbilt, played four years there before graduating in 2007, were you one of the kids dreaming of a professional career at that point in your life? I was. It became pretty clear about a couple years into my Vanderbilt career that it wasn't going to happen. Um, you know, I, I came in as the program was, was just starting. Tim Corbin, our head coach, had just gotten there. I was actually his, his first recruit. I oh, well. then came to realize that I was also his worst recruit. <laughs> um, but you know, very shortly after I got in, the David Prices of the world, the Mikey Miners, the Pedro Alvarezes, Ryan Flaherty, um, you know, a lot of major league talent came in, and I could kind of play that game of one of these things doesn't quite look like the other and, and realize that I was going to have to figure something out other than playing in order to, to continue my career in any way, shape, or form. Having played with some of those guys, did that give you sort of an early look at what big league players look like when they're 18, 19, 20 years old? I think so, yeah. I mean, it was. I, I had no idea what I was looking at at the time, but as I kind of think of it retroactively and – like actually compare myself taking batting practice next to Pedro and his first batting practice, even a freshman, and the way the ball was coming off his bat. And it's kind of like, okay, like that's how they're supposed to look. Um, and certainly got a lot of understanding of, of 
you know, what real baseball talent was outside of my little bubble growing up in Atlanta. Yeah, Manny Ramirez played in my high school's division, and I remember people yeah. saying, you have to come see this guy. This guy's going to be, you know, not only a big leaguer, but this is an all-star player. Yeah. And I guess sometimes even at 15, 16 years old, in your case, seeing them as freshman, sophomore, you, you understand the talent it takes to get to the level Absolutely. That they get to. Yeah, I was I was polishing up my resume pretty quickly. You're <laughs> like, okay, like this this might not work out. What am I actually going to end up doing? Um, and even playing with guys like that, your, your coach Tim Corbin said at the time. I read while you were in school in one of your Vandy bios, oh, yeah. uh, he called you an outstanding leader. Did leadership come naturally for you? That's a good question. You know, kind of the, the chicken and the egg. I, I was, I've been involved in a lot of really really powerful environments. Um, just been very blessed from that standpoint, starting just with my, my family environment was extremely supportive and had great examples and my parents and then my sister and then was lucky enough, you know, coming into college to be able to, to see, you know, great leadership in terms of, of what Tim was doing. So, you know, I, I think I was lucky enough and maybe um, smart enough to really try to take things from people over the course of even my young career as a baseball player. And, and I guess that came naturally, the, the, desire to learn and the desire to want to lead but I think there's a little bit of a snowball effect as well as, as you start to you know as a, you're a captain of your seventh grade basketball team and then make some mistakes but also do some things successfully to help your team come together and then you kind of want to want to have that feeling again and you feel like hey this might be my niche and you know I was lucky enough to be part of even more environments as my career continued to grow where I got a chance to practice that skill. Having gone to Vandy, you're probably one of the few people in baseball that gets excited when the winter meetings go to Nashville. <laughs> That's very true. So, so interestingly, <laughs> I, I, my wife is from Nashville. We had a ton of mutual friends, but we never actually met. And I met her at the last winter meetings in Nashville. So oh, really? I'd say that was our best best winter meetings acquisition ever. Right, uh, was my wife. So uh, I was excited at the point at that point, and obviously, um, hopefully, we'll get back there soon. You graduated from Vandy with a degree in human and organizational development. Uh, you said during your, your baseball time there, you realized that a pro career as a player wasn't in the cards. Uh, was a career in baseball the goal as soon as you graduated? It was as soon as I graduated. It wasn't senior year. So basically, like I mentioned earlier, read the writing on the wall that I wasn't going to play professionally. Tried to figure out what I wanted to do. My dad was in real estate. Took an internship the summer before my senior year in real estate rather than going and playing in the NECBL. Um, and about two weeks into it, realized this is not for me. And I thought that I really missed baseball. I thought I missed the physical aspects of baseball. What really, as I look back on it, what I missed was the community that baseball brought. And so I found that, I mean, I love baseball, but that's not what really drives or is driving my love for working for the Indians is being part of just such a great community and a great environment where people are investing in one another, people are all working towards a common goal. It sounds super cheesy, I get it, but um, we... It, we believe it and it actually you know makes it really fun to go to work every single day so i started to look for that and started to talk to people and say hey where can i find a community and i actually was talking to Derek johnson the uh, current pitching coach for the reds who was our pitching coach at the time the bandy and he was like well why don't you work in a front office and it was kind of the oh yeah like that's that might be the thing that i can find a community and potentially use a skill set that i've grown here now, this is like four three or four years after moneyball comes out right was that, did you read it? Was it influential? I know a lot of, uh, of executives in your age group that I've spoken to sort of said you never realized that you could work in baseball until they read that book and said, wait right. a second, maybe this is something I can do. 
Yeah, I, I did read the book around that time as I started thinking about what would it mean to work in a front office. I think I read John Sherholtz's book as well, and I think that one almost spoke to me more just from I wasn't coming at things from such a quantitative viewpoint at that point in my career, and certainly that's not my, my greatest skill set now, but something that we've all grown to learn, and obviously it's, it's so prevalent within major league front offices these days. But yes, like absolutely – knew that baseball was something that I loved and was thinking about, hey, what are some things I could potentially do? And the player, de- player development scouting piece was something that really spoke to me. And my first internship with the Indians was was on the advanced scouting side. And that's kind of how I got my foot into the door outside of the – or different from the money ball aspects of things and then just try to learn that along the way as I got into the Indians. That gets into my next question, which is how did you get that first job in baseball? Yeah, so I, I when I had that conversation of, hey, like I'm going to try this front office thing, just started calling every person that I could um, with any connection. So, you know, ask Coach Corbin, who do you know in professional baseball? Talk to a few, couple of people that he knew and then ask them, who do they know that they know? And just continue to network on that end and did that for basically my entire senior year. Sent resumes out to, you know, five or six people with all 30 teams. At that point, major league front offices were much smaller. There was basically one, front, one internship per year per team. Um, so it took me the entire – senior year plus six months after I graduated until I got an internship with the Indians. I got that one through a connection. Jensen Lewis was pitching for the Indians at the time, Jeremy Sowers as well. They connected me with Brad Grant, who was our scouting director at the time. Brad met with me for three minutes in the lobby of the winter meetings were actually in Nashville that year as well. Um, Told me that the Indians didn't have anything. I said, hey, thank you. Great to meet you. Um, he called me back 20 minutes later, said, hey, actually, we do have something. If you want to meet with Mike Turnoff tonight, met with Mike that night. Uh, a week later, came up to Cleveland and was lucky enough for them to offer me a job, and they haven't figured out how to kick me out since. <laughs> uh, so you've been with the Indians since 2008. You've worked your way up through the front office, but you started in the scouting department. Playing baseball, I'm sure, lends itself to being a scout, but is there a learning curve when you first enter that job of sort of figuring out how to scout, so to speak? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think we all understand baseball from our own experiences, and my own experiences were playing college baseball, which, you know, there obviously there's similarities to, um, you know, professional baseball, but it's not apples to apples. I was lucky in that I didn't play very much. I mean, if you look at my baseball <coughs> cube page, I had, what, like 38 at-bats or something over four years. It was pretty ridiculous <laughs> the amount of effort it must have taken to keep me off the field. Um, but I got to watch a ton of game, the game and talk to the coaches during the games. And I think I learned a lot from that standpoint. And then I learned a ton just through the investment of our professional scouts, the Dave Malpasses of the world, the Steve Lubradishes of the world, the Donnie Poplins of the world. Those guys all took the time to watch games with me and let me ask questions from them. And it felt like over a few years I started to get a foundation of what it meant to, to evaluate a player from that perspective, from that piece of the puzzle understanding that it takes 30 years to become an expert in those areas. Um, but was just, again, lucky to be in an environment where people wanted to help me grow. Less than three years after you started working for the club, you became the assistant director of player development. Um, you held that role for four years. We're talking about a decade ago, 2010. Yeah. What were the biggest challenges when it came to player development back in 2010? Yeah, I think, for one, like the operation was just so much smaller. It was basically me and Ross Atkins. So Ross was our farm director. I was our assistant farm director. Um, obviously, we had our coordinators. That's a position that still exists today. But, you know, really we had a two-man show that was trying to put player plans together, trying to think about systems and processes to implement to help our players get better. Um, the trickle-in of information was much smaller as well. It was basically voicemails that we were 
listening to every night. So to get a real picture of where a player was was difficult. And then to try to figure out where you wanted him to go was even more difficult. And then the hardest part was once you figure those two things out, then how are you going to how are you going to get there? How are you going to actually implement a plan? And when you have 200 players and you know two people thinking about it at that level, it, it becomes really difficult. That's changed significantly, you know, both from the amount of information that we get and then from the amount of people and the systems and the processes that we put in place. Um, so it's been fun to watch that growth, but learned a lot from really having to be jack of all trades, you know, back in 2010, and learned a ton from Ross during that time period as well. You are in a not very exclusive club of guests I've had on this podcast who have worked for Mark Shapiro. Yeah. Um, it's unbelievable how many people that I've interviewed on this podcast who came through yeah. Mark's, you know, clutches at some point. Um, what did you learn most from him? So Mark can really connect with so many different people from so many different levels. But as you look back at like, if I had to say what's his legacy from my perspective, it's just the people that he's brought in over the years. You know, he was always looking to find someone that, to steal a Chris Antonetti quote, that is smarter than him. Now I'd say I'm, I'm probably outside of that mix, but the other guys that he brought in, you know, he was just always looking for somebody that would challenge him, that would make him uh, a better executive, would make the organization better, but also looked for people that were great teammates, that cared about each other, that cared about the people that left to their right. And when you get those combinations of people that are driving to get you better, but also really care about you, you end up having a lot of success and building a culture of growth and building a culture where you, know, you look at all those, the guys that you've talked to have been in one organization for, for 10, 15 years. That's relatively unheard of within the within the industry, within professional sports. And really the only time these guys leave, you know, whether it's the Derek Falvey's or the Ross Atkins or, or guys of that nature is for, you know, that number one, number two job somewhere. So, you know, I think Mark's legacy is, is the legacies of all the people that he brought in and, and really introduced to the game and, um, and the types of people uh, that, that he's brought into the game as well. One of the other legacies he left with this organization, he created the Winter Development Program back in 1996. That program still continues, although now I believe you guys do it in the fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, how important is that week to the organization in, in trying to develop its players to that final step? Extremely important. I would say as things have evolved in player development, that week is a little more important than other weeks, but not that much more important than other weeks in the off season. But the purpose of it remains the same, and the impact of what Mark was trying to accomplish back in 1996 remains the same, which is how do we make sure that we are maximizing the time from October 1 to February 1 for our player development players, for our minor league players, and also our major league players. These guys are you know, obviously the most important piece of our organization. We cannot win unless our young players develop and are ready to hit the ground running from day one when they get up to the major leagues. And four months away from us is not ideal. And so we want to make sure that if those players aren't going to be at our off-season complex here in Goodyear, how do we set them up for success? And that involves that conversation that I was having earlier of where are they, where they want to go, how do they get there? And that's what the Winter Development Program did in 1996. That's what the Winter Development Program, the Fall Development Program does now. It's just the method in which we understand that the times that we are able to and the resources that we have to answer that question of how do we get there are different. Um, but it remains the same purpose, and, and luckily we've had some success with it. And that, that takes place in Cleveland, right? So we, we now we split it up. We have one in Cleveland. We have one in Arizona, just depending on the age of the player. We've expanded the pool pretty significantly, where it used to be just 
know, 15 players that were on the cusp of making their major league debut. Now we basically have the program with our entire organization outside of our first-year players. They do something a little bit different, more just from a foundational building standpoint. So, you know, it looks a really different from this on the surface, but as you dig down, you know, the purpose is the same as how do we get these guys to where they want to go. For the guys who go to Cleveland, I thought it was really interesting that it's – as much about getting them acclimated to knowing the way around the ballpark and knowing the way around the city. Is that something that gets overlooked sometimes when a minor leaguer finally graduates to the big leagues and all of a sudden they're thrust into a city that maybe they've been in once, they don't know their way around, they don't know where the trainer's room is, they don't know, little things like that. Do you think that that kind of thing gets overlooked? I think it can. I mean, it's just one of those little 1% incremental gains that, you know, if we're trying to win on the margins, like that's part of that. I think it's significantly more important for a guy to have a great offseason physically and understand his delivery and understand his pitch mix and all of those types of things. But at the same time, like that's a layup for us. If we can get a player familiar with the surroundings, familiar with the front office, familiar with, with our stadium and make him just 1% more comfortable when he makes that debut, like why would we not do that? If it's a medium leverage impact and a very, very low cost to do that, like let's take that to the bank every single day. And that's part of the program for sure and then we try to just continue to identify um, those little wins uh, along the way as well a few years ago you said there's no better messaging than the messaging that comes from our players when when you think about the role that your big league players have in helping groom those prospects to graduate to that next level how important is that unbelievably i was i was just reading a, a article this morning adam plutko was talking about you know some of the interactions that he's had with you know our more holistic performance team. So not just our pitching coaches, but all of our different personnel that are helping him develop his plan over the course of the off season and talking about how that's been impactful for him. It's one thing for me to go down to an 18 year old player and say, Hey, this is super important. It's another thing for the guy that's actually doing the thing that the 18 year old wants to do to say, Hey, here's the path, you know, here's the routine that you want to get into. Um, so it's huge and, and it snowballs and, um, it's so helpful when our guys, you know, can be basically our, our greatest supporters because ultimately we want our players to be, you know, their individual coaches for themselves, and you know they can't do that without somebody helping them along the way. You were promoted to director of player development after four years as the assistant director. Just I think eight or nine months later, Francisco Lindor made his big league debut. As you watched him move through the system, was it obvious that he was on track to become the type of player that he's become? He's basically the one outlier that. I don't want to say that we knew, but you know, there, there's so often the thing that we talk about with our with our player development staff and our scouting staff too is we just don't know. Like we just don't know who's going to be the elite player. No one knew that Jose Ramirez was going to be who Jose Ramirez is. I can look back at you know some evaluations our Arizona League coaches did back when Jose was just coming into the system, and you know they had him behind you know seven or eight people that you would never heard of and never will hear of because they're out of the game. They've been out of the game for ten years. And Jose's end up being one of the most valuable players in baseball. You just don't know. With Francisco, it was different. You, you kind of knew. And it, it makes it made it for a really interesting developmental path because we were always preparing him or trying to help prepare him uh, for the moments that he's actually having to deal with now, those major, major um, significant milestones that other players really don't have to worry about during their minor league development path. So... Um, from that standpoint, it was a really interesting process, but you really got to give it to Frankie to be able to handle all of that pressure, all of those expectations, and still be the person and the player that he is today. It's really, really impressive. What's it like watching him day in, day out? 
it's fun. You get you get spoiled. I mean, just the the ease in which he plays. I mean, heck, you know, I think his first or second bat yesterday, and, and you know, since a five month hiatus, you know, hits a ball four hundred feet to right center field. I mean, it's it's just a pleasure to be able to watch him play, and he's it's not just all natural. You know, he's he's worked really hard to get there, but he's taken the natural ability that he had and then made the most of it. Back in 2015, you're still in player development. The organization began using weighted baseballs with minor league affiliates. Didn't necessarily mesh with the club's prior philosophy. How important is it to be open-minded and try new things as an organization as new things present themselves? It's, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> it's extremely important to want to learn, to want to grow. I think it's also really important for us to make sure that there's some basis of understanding of why we're doing those things. There's so many things out there. We could throw a bunch of stuff against the wall and see what sticks. That's really not the type of approach that we want to have. We want to have an approach of we're looking at all the things people are throwing against the wall. We're really studying you know, the, the first principles underneath those things to try to decide which ones can help a player get to where we want to go based on some sort of research, based on some sort of science. Or if we don't have that, how can we research it ourselves? And I think weighted balls falls underneath that. You could see that there's a bunch of different places, external or professional baseball, using it. I think it was, you know, Ron Wolforth was probably the the name, the, the drive line back then, right. uh, so to speak. And you know, we had some connections there, and and you know, you had the Alan Jagers of the world, and you had all these other guys that were doing, you know, a little bit of a different type of developmental path for our pitchers. And we just really studied the heck out of it, and then, um, you know started with some small research projects and continued to grow when we saw the success of it and as other players started having success they spread the word to other players and it's just a, a process to make sure that you know we're not just copying what's out there but really making sure that whatever we are going to implement with our players there's a good why behind it. You mentioned earlier that analytics aren't necessarily your your strength uh, in terms of your general your whole job. When do you remember first kind of embracing the analytic revolution? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, there was never a rejection of it, um, and so I never really had to embrace it. I think it's maybe embrace is the wrong word. When when do you? I guess when do you think back as when it first really began to be a part of your job? Gotcha. Um, I think probably as so I was so focused on player development as more information became available on a player outside of just his performance numbers. So as you started to be able to track things like their body and their bats and the balls and track man starts coming in, a pitch effect starts coming in, and then you're trying to really make decisions based on all this objective information. You can either, one, just reject all of that objective information or two, try to make some sense of it. And again, been so lucky to be in a great environment with some really elite minds as it comes to, to looking at things from a statistical perspective. This guy interchecks with one of our assistant GMs. I've learned so much from him. And Mike Chernoff, you know, was our analytics department back in 2006 and um, been able to learn so much from him and that former other, our other assistant GM. Those guys, you know, really have, have helped me grow in those areas. And, you know, it's, it's gotten to the point where it's not even analytics versus anything anymore. It's just, hey, we have information. We want to make sure that we're eliminating bias from that information. How do we go about doing that? As far as player development goes, do you make a point to educate players in lower levels of the minors about analytics at this point? Is it something where, sort of like you were talking about with getting to Cleveland or not knowing your way around, yeah. if you're not really, if you're a young player in A ball, rookie ball, even double A, and you're not really using analytics very yeah. much, and all of a sudden you get the triple A or the big leagues, 
and all this stuff's being thrown at you, I would imagine as a player that's probably pretty overwhelming. Yeah, it's a, it's a really delicate balance that we have to have to work through because on one end with a you know, 18-year-old Latin American pitcher or 16-year-old Latin American pitcher or even you know a kid coming out of high school or, or college for us, like, we really don't care what his spin axis is on his fastball and we really don't care what his rotational acceleration is on his bat and all these different numbers that players especially youth players these days on twitter and instagram are all looking at and, and following we really care about hey do you know what your delivery should look like do you know what your swing should look like what are you doing with your body to put yourself in those positions but the players are going to be asking those questions and so we have to kind of meet them in the middle where we're saying hey these are numbers that you're going to hear this is what they mean but here are some of the potentially higher leverage things that we want you to consider um, so it's that dance of giving them information and making sure we're educating them on some of the higher level type things, pitch design being a, a hot topic these days. Like I don't want a rookie ball pitcher to be working through pitch design. Like I want him to make sure he's going to bed on time. He has a good throwing program and he's eating the right things every day. Like if he does that, he's going to be in a lot better position two years from now than if he learns to tunnel his slider off of his changeup. Like it's, it's trying to make sure guys aren't getting the cart in front of the horse, but making sure we're not just forgetting about the entire horse at the same time. And I'm sure with 18-year-olds who have always been the best at what they do at the high school level or wherever they were playing, that can be difficult, I would imagine. Absolutely. And so it's really just continuing to, to beat the drum on what are the things that are important to us as an organization, what are the things that are important to us from a foundational standpoint for a player, and then really just try to build on top of that foundation to, yeah, like of course at some point we're going to talk about pitch design. But it's not going to be in your first start in Arizona Summer League. It's going to be later on when we're trying to figure out how to get a major league hitter out. Back in June of 2016, you guys had shaken off a sluggish start, surging to first place, and right around that time, the Cavaliers won the NBA title. It's the first championship for Cleveland in 52 years. What was the city like when that happened, and did that have any impact, even indirectly, on your club? It was crazy. I remember I, I flew home the night that they had won Game 7, I believe it was game seven yeah and somebody was watching it on the plane flying into Cleveland um just had it on like streaming on their iPad and the entire plane was going crazy and I was trying to drive back to my apartment downtown and couldn't get there the city was shut down so I had to park my car and walk to my apartment so the city was was infectious and I think it was really cool to see just the passion that the city of Cleveland has for its sports teams and you know it's inspiring to say hey like we can really like make an impact on this city and, and really you know, drive some happiness with these people. And, and it, from that standpoint, it really, um, you know, I think motivated us to continue to, to work to put a winning product on the field every year. So that was fun. Um, you know, in terms of uh, any significant impact logistically or, or, you know, and how we're actually operating, didn't see much there. Uh, but just in terms of just really get, gaining an appreciation for the Cleveland fan, um, you know, definitely had that. Right around that same time, you guys had a 14-game winning streak late June, helped you sort of seize control of the division, at least for the time being. Um, come trade deadline time, the Tigers had pulled within four and a half games. You guys go out and acquire Andrew Miller. Uh, what do you remember about the way that deal came together? I remember calling Clint Frazier and, and Justice Sheffield at 6 in the morning on, I think, I guess it was July 30th or 31st, and I called Clint, and he, he picked up the phone and said, it's me, isn't it? Like yeah, Clint, it's you. Um, so that's that's always a, a bittersweet moment when you know you have these players that you've gained relationships with, and, and they're going to another team. But I think everybody understands, you know, just the the amount of uh, 
business that's involved in this and, and that always there's the chance that, that something like that's going to happen. But also remember just the excitement that we had as an organization that, hey, like we really feel like we put ourselves in a window where we can compete and compete for a long time. Obviously, we had Andrew for a couple of years after that as well, and that was part of the, the motivation for that deal. And, um, you know, it was just a real exciting time after, you know, I've been there for almost 10 years at that point think, hey, like we got a chance to, you know, not only go to a wild card game, but like go to the division series and, and continue to win on. And um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what you do it for is really those types of moments. You mentioned before that for an organization like yours, your young players developing and becoming significant players, at the big league level is crucial to the way you do business. How tough is it to weigh short term, even for a guy who signed for a couple of years versus long term of your number one prospect in Clint Frazier, your number one pitching prospect uh, or number one or two, I don't remember what number yeah. he was. I think he was number four overall. So uh, in, in Justice Sheffield, and and weighing the pros and cons of going for it versus these two yeah. players who you considered, you know, to be integral yeah. parts of your future. It's interesting. I mean, you can crunch the numbers and come up with an objective answer to that question of you know, hey, like should we or should we not do this deal? But that doesn't take into account so many of the emotions and other variables that aren't captured, you know, in the numbers that are available to us. And I think that's a really fun part about being within our organization and how great leaders that Chris Antonetti and Mike Chernoff are and how great of an owner we work for and Paul Dolan. I'm not just saying that because he signs our paychecks. You know, he's really, um, you know, empowers us to, to be able to operate and, and um, you know, gives us a, a ton of resources to be able to do so. But the ability for all of us to be able to work as a team to really flush out those emotions and flush out all the variables that we may or may not be factoring in, um, you know, really makes it fun and makes just such a great learning experience for all of us within the office. And I think it's no surprise is why so many guys have been able to go on to, to bigger and better things because they've been involved at that level, you know, from the get go within the organization. Was Miller the guy that you had all sort of targeted given that he was signed for a couple more years? Was that, I mean, the Cubs paid a pretty hefty price to get Chapman, but he was going to be a free agent. Right. Um, was Miller appealing not only for what he offers, but as much for the fact that there was control there? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, obviously there's – you look at a whole wide swath of who can help our team down the stretch and who can help our team in 17 and 18. And, you know, obviously there's giving away more players to give them more control, and so just balancing all of that. But um, he was clearly a guy that we were focused on and – um, you know, one that Chris, you know, and Mike and, and our whole team really worked hard to, to try to acquire. We were lucky enough to be able to get them, and it, it worked out well. That acquisition did work out well. You guys won the AL Central. You swept the Red Sox in the division series. That set up an ALCS showdown with the Blue Jays, who at the time, for about a year, were being run by Mark Shapiro, yep. our old boss. What was it like as a group here going to the ALCS, chance to get to the World Series, and having Mark on the other side? Yeah, it was probably weirder for Chris just having worked with him so, so long. Um, I didn't see him. We didn't see him that much until after it was over, after game six. Um, and he came into the clubhouse and congratulated everybody. And I just remember thinking that was so impressive of him to, you know, even in that moment of, of disappointment for his organization to be able to kind of take the other side of his mind and say, hey, like, these are people that I care about and I want to make sure they know that I'm happy for them. And he genuinely was, you know, it wasn't him just going through the motions, you know, and Ross as well, you know, came over. And so um, just continue to, to grow their respect for, for those guys and, you know, just continues to reinforce the, the types of people that, you know, the person that Mark is and the types of people that he brings into organizations. You guys won that series in five games. You go to the World Series against the Cubs. 
what's that week like of getting you know ready for the World Series and and we'll just go through the first six games for start here. Yeah. Uh, what what's it like you know sort of being that close to the ultimate the ultimate prize? It was surreal at that point. I mean, because we were you know just trying to win a division for the first time in a long time, and then all of a sudden that. You know, that Red Sox series went so quick, and then you, know, you mentioned the ALCS, which is five games, and all of a sudden you're like, "Oh my God! Like we're we're in the World Series! Like we got a chance at this thing." We're clicking on all cylinders. It was basically just trying to use every single resource within the organization, bring them together with multiple perspectives to prepare for for the Cubs. You know, there's there's so many times when you're thinking about the long term view as a front office member, and that's the interesting kind of dichotomy between you know, Tito and the major league staff and the front office of you know, they're looking to try to win every single day. We're tr- looking to try to win that day, but also into the future. And because of those different perspectives, the tension that, that comes up from that creates really good ideas, and you really learn how to balance you know, both of those motivations over the course of the year. But this is the one time where you know, we don't care except for those seven games. And um, just to see everyone in the organization and baseball operations specifically, from pro scouts to amateur scouts to – front office people to R&D analytics people all come together to, to really try to dive into the information, prepare for that. It was really, really cool to see. You guys have the lead in the series, 3-2, coming back to Cleveland, goes to Game 7. What are the emotions like during Game 7? I, I don't remember much from Game 7, to be honest. My parents had come into town. Um, I remember Raj's home run, and I think everybody does. Like I remember just the elation of that. And just thinking, like, this is the greatest baseball feeling I've, I've ever had. And I think I speak for everyone when I say that. I remember the rain out or the, the rain um, when they put the tarp on. Um, and then the next thing I remember is walking down to the clubhouse just to shake the hands of the, of the staff and, and seeing everybody in there. And um, so it's a little bit cloudy, but, but I do remember just being really proud to be part of the organization at that point. I mean, it was incredibly disappointing obviously um but just again you know i keep on going back to the people just remember being really proud to be around people that did it the right way we didn't win obviously but we put everything we possibly could into it and we did it in the right way and that that felt really really good shortly after that series you were promoted to assistant gm what did that mean to you you know it 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 meant just opportunity to learn more in different areas. You know, I've been so focused on player development for so long and to get into that assistant GM role along with Matt Foreman at the time, just continue to open up the scope of the things that I was involved in. And, you know, I think my learning curve has been so much deeper over the last three years because of that. And, you know, understanding more about our amateur scouting process, understanding more about our professional scouting process, our player acquisition process, just the systems that we want to build in order to, to continue to be successful. and thinking about our culture and just personnel and all of those different things and this rapidly changing game to kind of take your blinders off a little bit more um, has been just really, really interesting and you know, thankful again to, I keep on saying it, to be in an organization where I can be around so many people that I can learn from and are willing to teach um, and then try to share that as well to the other guys that are coming in, whether they be younger than me or, you know, or guys that I've worked with for a long time, just how can we continue to share and build each other because that's the only way we can continue to compete with the teams out there that certainly have you know a couple more pennies to, to put into the bank than we do after that series ends players can kind of just disappear and decompress and take a few months to reflect and get ready for the next season you guys don't have that luxury you jump right in and the GM meetings are like you know less than a week later yep. you're assistant GM now what what is it like to have to dive 
right into an off-season plan? Is that almost a good distraction to use it as motivation? How, how is it to sort of shake off Game 7 and then just have to dive right in? Like you said, yeah. you guys were always looking ahead. I think it was a good distraction. Um, you know, we didn't really dwell on anything. It's probably much harder for, for Tito going back to Tucson and, and thinking about it than it was for us that were going to Arizona, but for the GM meetings and, and thinking about the, the year coming up. And we were positioned well, we felt like, for the next year and obviously end up winning that division again. Um, so we're excited about the future and excited about, you know, what was coming up. So honestly, it was the best thing um, just to, to get right back into it. That's what we do. You know, no one takes vacations. You know, we get between Christmas and New Year's. That's that's about it. And it's great for us. It's awful for our wives. And, and, they're, <laughs> and they're, they're absolute saints for, for dealing with us. And Baseball and, writers' wives can, can yeah, uh, relate exactly. to that as well. So, yeah, we should give a shout-out to, to all the wives <laughs> out there that we are, we are much better because of them and they're much better people than we are. Uh, but, yeah, it, it was probably the best thing for us just to jump right in. You've worked with Chris and Mike during your entire tenure here. What's the best part of having that kind of continuity and that kind of stability within the front office? I think the – use a kind of academic term here, but the psychological safety where I'm not afraid or no one's afraid, you know, within our leadership group of having a terrible idea, and I've had plenty of them. But to go in and, and really feel like we can share what's on our minds with the faith that we are not going to be punished for that and, in fact, are going to celebrate the idea that, hey, we're trying to get better. And if they we decide, hey, it's a bad idea, it's like, all right, fine. Like, that doesn't – I'm not worried about that reaction. So that that psychological safety is huge and just knowing the stability that we have. And, and again, it starts with Paul. You know, he creates that stability for us. And then Chris, you know, really kind of – radiates that through the rest of the organization but it just allows for people to have really great ideas because we don't have to worry about having a bad one you've credited terry francona for his impact on the culture of your team what's the best attribute that a manager in this era can have i feel like a lot of people have sort of um lessened the importance of a manager uh, to a baseball team the front offices are kind of running the show now um what makes a good manager in this in this era so he's an outstanding partner for one, you know, so he and Chris and Mike and, and the rest of our organization, we are really, really good partnership again, where there's that positive tension of when now versus when later, where when now and later, that creates some really great ideas. But I, I think Tito's greatest strength might be just his ability to get 25, now 26 guys and a 12-man coaching staff to focus on every single day being the very best that they can be for that particular day. There's so many ups and downs over the course of a 162-game season that if you ride those waves, like it's going to be very difficult for you to get through an entire year. Tito is able to refocus and refocus our group every single day to the point where we don't have to ride those waves because we're just trying to win for that day. And it shows over the course of 162 games. And whether you objectively can say like that's worth – one win or worth six wins, we all know in our heart of hearts that you know he's had a real impact on our success over the years, and we wouldn't be where we are without him. The Indians played in one postseason game during your first eight seasons in the organization. Then you guys made the playoffs in three straight years. You went to the World Series in 2016. Did those early years help you kind of keep things in perspective when those Octobers ended with a loss? It does. I mean, I, I think, you know, it, two things. One, it gave us perspective of, yeah, like, this really stinks, but it's not as bad as not having the opportunity to have this feeling. But then, two, to just appreciate it when it's there. 
you know, when, when you're in that, that run of, of three straight division championships and hopefully trying to, to get back into another run, um, just the appreciation of, hey, like this doesn't happen every year. Like I imagine if, you know, you're we're, we're an intern with the Dodgers four years ago, you're like, oh, yeah, we're going to be in the, <laughs> we're going to be in the ALCS every single year. Um, and it's just it's just not that way. And um, so it really gives us appreciation and, and makes us want to continue to work to be able to, to continue to have those feelings. Fans and media love to talk about prospect rankings from MLB Pipeline, other outlets. Uh, you once said of prospects, and you may have even said it earlier in this interview, you just don't know. Right. Right. Do you pay attention to rankings? Do they do they mean anything to you, or is it, you know, you could do your rankings and they'd be completely different, and those don't matter either because you just right. don't know. Like I think it's you know there's a question of is there a correlation between Baseball America rankings, Baseball Prospectus rankings, Fangraphs rankings, and future major league value? Like of course there is. Like of course there's a correlation, but that shouldn't change how we go about trying to help a player get better, especially within a developmental environment. So yeah, like we have to make decisions at some point about players in terms of trades or in terms of promotions. There's all these decisions that we have to make at some point, but those are very finite pieces of time and don't really happen all that often over the course of an individual player's career. But we are making constant decisions about how we help develop that player, the resources that we give that player, things of that nature. And it shouldn't matter at all whether that guy is a top 100 guy or not a top 100 guy. If we had just kicked Jose Ramirez to the curb when he was the backup utility infielder for the Arizona Summer League Indians, well, then we wouldn't have had the success with him that we've had you know, for so many years. If we had said, hey, Shane Bieber wasn't a first rounder, of course we're not gonna really put effort into an off season plan for him. Well, then we wouldn't have been able to help him to get to where he's gotten. Obviously, he should be the one that gets all the credit for that, but we wouldn't have been a resource for him to, to really help out. So I think when that we don't really know, it really more applies to the decisions we're making on a daily basis on these guys and making sure that we're not prejudging anyone because like that, that only gives us basically that situation where we say that guy's going to be bad so he will be bad or we say that guy's going to be good so he will be good like let's just say we're going to try to get everybody good and figure out which ones we can actually make make a lead it seems like the rankings almost serve as a measure of expectations externally what other people are expecting from these players right i mean that's uh, the the 10th ranked prospect for one team could theoretically be the number one prospect for another team based on the strength of the system so it's all a matter yeah. of how you look at them, right? Yeah, I'm going to botch this a little bit, but I looked back uh, last year. I was talking to our staff. It was like the 2010 top 20 years on the summer league prospects through the 2015. And on that list, we had like 17 guys or something that were on that top 20 years on the summer league prospect list. One of them got a cup of coffee in the major leagues. Wow. So, again, this is I'm, I'm botching the years. Sure. So regardless. The point is made. <laughs> At the same time, there were other players that were on those teams, inclusive of Jose Ramirez, all-star, Jesus Aguilar, all-star, Ryan Merritt, helped us win game five in ALCS, Eric Haas, major leader. There's like 12 guys that made the big leagues that weren't on those lists. So it's like, hey, guys, like it's almost we got to work harder on the guys that are on these lists that they can break the curse of, of being on these lists right. and having these rankings than, than the alternative. What, uh, what's the trade deadline like for you? Uh, it's it's fun, you know. So Matt and, and Sky and Matt and Chris or or Mike and Chris are, you know, really like they're the guys that are super super focused on it, and they've been nice enough over the last couple of years to help me get involved and, and be able to be a part of it. But um, it's just an exciting time where you know you're you're thinking about the future of your franchise and you know how much of the future you want to mortgage for for the now wins, and um, it's just a lot of really interesting thought experiments and. 
um, you know, the game theory of it and all those types of things. But um, an exciting time, a stressful time, um, but one that's incredibly important if you think about all the deals we've made over the last 10 years and the impact that's had in our franchise. And, you know, there might not be, other than the draft, a, a more important time. What's your favorite part of your job? The people. I mean, I'm, I keep on saying it, but just, like, these are my friends, these are my family. You know, I have my wife and two kids at home. Like, that's my, my real family, but this is 1A here, um, or 1B, I guess I should say. Um, you know, it's just it's fun. You, you come in, you get to hang out with your buddies for 10 hours, talk about baseball, talk about trying to get better, have them challenge you to have to get better, and, uh, you know, get to go home, go to sleep, and get up and do it all over again. What's your least favorite part of your job? Least favorite, 100%, would be the leaving of the people, you know, whether that be releasing a player or, you know, a coach leaving or, you know, something of that nature. Those difficult decisions, those finite pieces that are finite times where we have to make a difficult decision. We do it. Um, we try to do it with as much empathy as we possibly can, but, um, you know, it's, it's never fun when you have to have a difficult conversation with somebody. You've seen other people here, Derek Falvey, Ross Atkins, et cetera, move on to go run their own teams. Is that an aspiration of yours? Is that an important goal for you? It's a really good question. I mean, I think anyone in any industry wants to be as successful as they possibly can. And the question is, like, what does that mean? And why do I want to be successful? I want to be successful because that hopefully would make me happy. And I'm extremely happy in the job I'm in now. I'm extremely happy in the environment that I'm in now. If there's an opportunity where when my wife and I talked through it, we felt like there's a chance that, you know, it could be even happier than I am now, uh, of course we would consider it, but that would be a really, really high bar. Uh, I'm going to take this last question back to the Cavs again. You saw what that title in 2016 meant to Cleveland. What would it mean to you to help bring a World Series trophy to the city? That's a really interesting question. You know, I, I think it would mean for all of us, you know, just I wouldn't say reinforcement of what we've what we've done. I think we feel really good about our process. I think we feel really good about the effort that we put into it. Um, I think it would just be fun to let other people share in that joy, you know. And so the joy that we have from <laughs> seeing a young player make it up to the major leagues, like I can't imagine that the average Joe in Cleveland is, is necessarily feeling that same thing. They're looking for that championship. And, you know, to be able to have them share in that joy would be really, really fun. Carter, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you as well. I really appreciate it. Many thanks to Carter Hawkins for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. In our next episode, I'll be joined by White Sox Director of Player Development, Chris Getz. We'll discuss his playing career, how it's helped him in his current role, his first post-playing stop in Kansas City, Chicago's success in developing a young core, and much more. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinstein. Stay safe, everybody. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazon's 
of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.